us together. And I think being together as a people is more of an essential in terms of Christian fellowship than it would be for other kinds of relationships. And so this is indeed a blessing. As Elder Gordon mentioned, yesterday was 20 years from the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And I'm a little bit curious as to how many of you have a recollection of that day. And so I'm just going to ask for a show of it. How many of you remember where you were and what you were doing on September 11, 2001? How many of you remember? Okay, this is, it's interesting because I mean, you know, <laughs> 10 years ago, I think everyone would have raised their hand. Now it's like half the people here. I was, I remember exactly where I was because I remember I was with a study group and we were cramming our Greek in before the quiz. <laughs> and I remember actually feeling kind of jealous of one of my uh, classmates because he had an almost photographic memory. And so <laughs> he would just come in, we would like do some review exercise, and then he would just go down the word list. And then he would be fine for the quiz afterwards. Whereas with me, language was something I had to review and review and review. But as we were reviewing, we heard a very strange sound, which was the sound of a TV. And in the seminar I was in, there was never a TV on. Actually, uh, I don't even remember seeing TVs. But we heard the unmistakable sound of a TV going on in the break room. So after we were done, we went into the break room, and that's where we saw there was this little black and white TV someone had dug out of somewhere. And the news broadcasts were all showing the attacks, the planes crashing into the World Trade Center, and then the buildings collapsing. One of the enduring images of 9-11 was a picture called Falling Man. And Falling Man was simply a picture of someone, one of many, who, to avoid being incinerated in the fire that came from it, had chosen to jump from the buildings. And so it's just a picture of a, a lonely body against the skyscrapers that were still at that time standing and falling. And now 20 years later, we've seen some of those same terrible images. Just a few days ago, there was a man named Fada Muhammad, who was a dentist in Kabul, when he was one of the ones who made a desperate attempt to flee Afghanistan by clinging onto a cargo plane as it was taking off from Kabul. And 9-11 does remind me of those freedoms that we've been blessed with in this country through God's grace and the sacrifice of many who have given their lives in order to, to establish and maintain that freedom. And images like what we've seen in the last few days of those last terrible days in Afghanistan show how precious those freedoms are, that some people would be willing to make such a desperate gamble in order to obtain those freedoms. And many of us who have been praying together on Saturday mornings have been praying for the Christians who have been left behind in Afghanistan and must now endure living under the oppression of those who are committed to their destruction. 
Now, the heaviness of these subjects hardly makes it seem that there could be any freedoms that would be any heavier or weightier than these. And yet it is a freedom, a greater freedom, that Paul speaks about in his letter to the Philippians. The greater freedom won for us by Christ. And as we read the scripture passage this morning, it occurs to me that I should have actually gone a few verses earlier, because when we read that Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Well, what is this, and what is it? And actually, I was just talking with Rachel as we were coming into the sanctuary, and she was talking about uh, being gospel-centered, and I mentioned that it's hard to avoid the gospel in the book of Philippians because this and it is the gospel. It is what Jesus Christ has won for us at the cross, giving us the righteousness from God that is by faith. And so that is what Paul is talking about here in our passage today in Philippians chapter 3, the gospel and making the gospel his own. And so let me just read that section that immediately precedes our passage. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so let's make that our prayer too as we come into this passage. Lord God, as we read the words of the Apostle Paul, written over 2,000 years ago, telling us of this great freedom, won for us by our Lord and Savior, I pray, Father, that you would help us this morning be convicted that we must make this salvation the salvation that comes through righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ, our own. And that you will bring it home to us, that your spirit might work within us. That these great freedoms would be made real in our lives. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Now here we have two things. And it occurs to me that as I've been going through Philippians, I see more and more the unity of this book. And what I mean by that is we looked two weeks ago at the kind of disjunction brought on as we enter into chapter three, or so it seems, because Paul turns from talking about Jesus Christ and his example on the cross and how he did not consider equality with God with something that he wanted to grasp, but instead made himself nothing in order to bring glory to God and salvation to his people. And then he goes on to Timothy, who he says he has no one like Timothy, 
who considers others' interests over his own. And then he goes on to Epaphrodites, who almost dies for the cause of the gospel in order to fulfill the help that was lacking from the Philippians. And then he turns to this passage where he says, look out for the dogs, those who do evil. And why does he go from celebrating Jesus Christ and these faithful servants of God and then turn all of a sudden to this passage of dogs who do evil, who mutilate the flesh? And it's because these things reflect a certain tension in salvation. We talk about salvation, we say salvation is by grace through faith alone and not by works. And at the same time, we see that there is work that is essential to salvation. And so this is something that uh, Paul has been speaking about throughout the book of Philippians. Paul talks about the sacrifice and service that comes from his being poured out like a drink offering for the Philippians. He talks about in chapter 2, how we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. It's not simply just live out, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And now here in chapter 3, he is saying, I press on to make it my own. And also, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so how do we bring these two ideas together? That on the one hand, our salvation is by faith and not by works. And on the other hand, this necessity to work on our salvation, to strive to make this righteousness that is by God through faith our own. So is it simply by faith, or is it something that we need to work out for ourselves? Well, let me give you one analogy that maybe can help resolve some of this tension. One of the things that uh, our family likes to do together that I know a number of you did this last week, or actually just yesterday, and I was very jealous of the ones who went, was uh, Jimmy took a bunch of people out for a bike ride, and there's these wonderful paths that he takes people on, which are these rails to trails. And there's one that I particularly like, because it goes through these two long tunnels. And I know that my boys would love to go through it, because we have these bike lights. They love having their bike lights. And that is a place that would be very useful, because you plunge into these long uh, what used to be rail lines, so they go through these long tunnels, and the tunnels curve, so there's points in the tunnel, you can't see either end, and it's completely dark, unless you have your light. Um, so we like to go biking, and where we acquired most of our bikes, almost all of them actually, was I bought them off Craigslist, because when I was a student at SMRE, the uh, easiest way to get a good bike was to just, you know, buy it used from someone else, probably someone who had neglected the bike or was no longer riding it, and it would come to you in probably not very good condition if you bought it cheap, which is what I did, and then you have to spend a lot of time fixing it up. And I had a lot more money than time. No, no, I'm sorry, the other way around. I had a lot more time than money. <laughs> and so I would fix up these bikes. 
So we would, uh, I'm sure the boys, actually the three older ones are all old enough to remember. We would go to these random people's houses and dad would go talk to this person in this house and he'd come back with a bike and we'd stick in the back of the car, drive it home and then we'd start fixing it up. <laughs> okay, so these bikes that the boys would ride, how did they get them? Well, they didn't pay money for them. I was the one who paid some money for them. And then how are they restored into an operable condition so the boys could ride them? Well, I, I watched these uh, videos. Do you guys remember? Who's, who's the guy I watched the most? Bike man for you. So <laughs> I'm doing some free advertising for him. He, he used to have, never fear, bike man for you is here. And that was his tagline. He always used, and he'd always wear these shirts, uh, something about like uh, one less car or something like that was, was his, his shirt. Uh, but I learned a lot about fixing up bikes when this guy I would watch the videos and I go, okay, that's how I, you know, put on the brakes. Oh, okay, that's how I adjust the shifting so that it shifts just right. Oh, that's the kind of, uh, oh, and he, would, he would show you even like the differences between the different kind of chains for like seven speeds, eight speeds, nine speeds. The, the spacing's different, so you can't just use any bike chain. Uh, so I learned all those things. I would, I would fix up the bikes until they were in good operating condition, the condition they're in today. Now, how did the boys obtain those bikes? Well, there's all this work that went into them, right? And so their ownership of those bikes was completely by their parents, my grace. But how useful were those bikes to them? Well, at the beginning, these bikes were completely useless because they had no idea how to ride it. They were really happy to own it. They liked looking at it. I've got a picture of, of uh, one of them just like looking at his bike. <laughs> like, you know, he's being introduced to a friend and it would become his friend. He made it his own by getting on the bike. And at first kind of like with the training wheels, learning how to get the bike to even just move forward. And then getting the training wheels off and learning to balance. And the more he rode that bike, the more his it became. You see that? And so in a like way, each one of us has been provided with salvation by God if we have trusted in Jesus Christ. But salvation is not just the forgiveness of sin. But salvation is also freedom from all the effects and the power of sin. And so that's why you will read in the Gospels things like you are saved and also you are being saved because salvation is something that is ongoing. Now, it is God who empowers us in the work of salvation. And so it is his provision of salvation. And then, if I continue on my analogy, which I better be careful not to stretch too far, it's as though he's helping us learn to ride that bike. He's walking alongside us. He's encouraging us. He's helping us see the goodness of these bike rides. And my boys would sometimes see, like, I know I'm, uh, actually, I even worried my wife, Irene, sometimes, because I would, I would take off on these long 50-mile bike rides and, you know, they would be like, wow, it's nine o'clock. Dad's not back yet. It's completely dark. I hope he's okay. It's pouring rain. You know, I got caught in a few rainstorms coming back. And then you have to dry the whole bike or it's going to rust. Um, okay, that's taking the analogy too far. But you see how 
God is the one who through and through gives us salvation. And yet there is a way in which you are to take it and to make it on your own. Now, why does God do that with us? Why not just make us wholly sanctified when we receive Christ? There was a uh, movie a number of years ago, and this is even more years ago than uh, 9-11. But it's a classic, and I kind of feel that when we went through school, many of us were exposed to it, a, a movie called My Fair Lady. And the reason I think that many of you might have seen it, even those of you who are much younger, is that at least in my day, it was a movie that every English teacher showed. Because it was uh, one where there was this young lady named Eliza Doolittle. And she had this uh, very strong kind of what was in England, a Cockney lower class accent. And her dream was not to be gathering these flowers and selling them on street corners, but to be able to work in a beautiful shop and sell these flowers. And so she wanted to learn to speak in a more genteel way. And so she went to this professor named Henry Higgins. And through the course of this movie, Henry Higgins is teaching her to speak like a lady, but it's an enormous struggle because she's so used to speaking with a certain kind of accent. She's so used to speaking in a certain kind of way. And he's trying to teach her how to be, in a sense, my fair lady. Now today, if you watch it, and there was recently a, a, a remake of it, because the ending was one which people struggled with a bit. It, this, this was a movie that was placed on that list of like the 100 greatest movies ever made. But the ending really irked some people. Because what happens at the end is that Henry Higgins shows that he's mostly you know, thinking about himself through this. And, oh, I did it. I made this gutter snipe into this very classy lady. And you can see that he doesn't respect her and her striving and her accomplishment. And so at one point, she throws a pair of slippers at him and storms out and leaves him and says she's going to marry this young man who's been following her around. And then he realizes, and he sings this song, because it's kind of a musical uh, piece. He sings a song, I've grown accustomed to her face. And it's this idea that he has come, he really has come to value and appreciate her. But at the end of the movie, after he's been around looking for her, can't find her, and then he returns home, she shows up. And you can see he's very pleased that she's come back. But he sinks down in his chair and he says, so where are my slippers? Which, you wonder how much has he really learned to respect her and value her and value her accomplishments. What God does is he makes us our, his partner in our salvation. Salvation is not simply something that God simply does and we sit back. Kind of like if uh, I go to Elder Gordon and uh, I've got a tooth problem, uh, what's, what's going to happen? Is Elder Gordon going to say, okay, let's fix your tooth? Uh, and so he, he hands me the drill and the mirror and says, okay, uh, I'll suction your saliva here and, and you drill here and, and we'll work on this together. No, I'm just going to sit back and he's going to make everything good, I hope. <laughs> 
but God makes us his partner. And our role is real and significant because what God is making of us is children, is friends, is partners. And even though we are far less capable of our salvation than Eliza is in learning how to speak like the lady, God entrusts us with making our own the salvation that he has given us. And there's this tension because it is, as we read in chapter 2 and verse 12, we who work out our salvation with fear and trembling, and then in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so it is both God and it is us. And there is this tension in which both are necessary, and yet we are saved simply by grace and through faith. But once we understand that, and, and, and the reason that it's so good is this, is that if our salvation was dependent upon ourselves, how well would we do? Then we would go back to what we have at the beginning of chapter 3. We would be saved by what we do. And the problem with that is this. On the one hand, those who feel that they're doing well enough, those who feel that, yes, I'm walking in my salvation, I have done it, would have reason to be prideful. And that's actually the case with every other major religion. It is you who is responsible for becoming the kind of person who is acceptable to God. And so there's a natural kind of pridefulness that leads to it. But the flip side of the pridefulness is also despair, because each one of us will come at some point in time to a place where we fail. If you've been a Christian long enough, you're conscious of many failings in your life. You have not walked faithfully with God. I really appreciate the song that uh, Matthew and Ben and Diana led us through this morning. Yet I look for worldly treasure and forsake the King of Kings. I mean, we've all done that, right? Yes, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I go pursue some worldly thing. And if I am saved by my own righteousness, and by how well I've walked with the Lord, now's the time to despair, because I'm not good enough. But our salvation is accomplished simply by grace and through faith, and yet we are engaged in a partnership with God to make it our own. And so look at what Paul says there in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. And so Without that understanding of this dual nature of salvation, that looks very scary. If the Apostle Paul had not yet made the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ his own, if he wasn't there, where are you? Are you walking as well as Paul? And if Paul hadn't obtained it at that point in time, where are you? But Paul here is striving to make it his own. And when he says this, I press on, there's an interesting word there that I think is one that 
very much challenges me as a Christian. When he says, I press on to make it my own, he uses a particular word that he's actually used in a different form earlier as a participle. Because when we read in the section immediately prior to this about why Paul puts no confidence in the flesh, when he says he has reasons for confidence, one of the reasons that he gives for confidence is that he is a persecutor of the church. In other words, in his zealousness for the law, for the Torah, the law of God, he became someone who was a persecutor of the church. And this would have been something that probably much more real to those early church members than to us today. Because if you read the book of Acts, you know Paul, before he was met on the road to Damascus by the Lord Jesus Christ, well, why was he on that road to Damascus? Because he had caused so many, he had actually served to spread the gospel in a certain way, right? Because the Christians were so terrified of Paul, who was going from house to house and dragging off to prison, much like we might think of those persecutors in Afghanistan today, persecuting Christians, going house to house, imprisoning those who had put their faith in Jesus Christ, and having uh, persecuted the Christians in Jerusalem, was now extending this program of persecution, going off to other cities when he was met by Jesus Christ. But it was that zeal which he now recognized was part of the righteousness that he was trying to accomplish by works, that he now turns and applies to his walk with God. In the same way, with the same fervor that before he persecuted the church, now he was pursuing Christ. And so for those Christians who perhaps had fled from Paul, because of his persecution of the church. He says here, he presses on. He, he, in a sense, persecutes or pursues Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus has made him his own. Now, we're generally not trying to be saved by obeying the laws of the Torah. But here, what Paul is talking about, in a broader sense, is simply this idea that we're the ones who can bring fulfillment into our lives. We're the ones who can justify ourselves. And here, I think, is the warning for us. How is it that we are trying to establish ourselves? How do we justify our existence? How do we look at our accomplishments? In what way do we regard our talents and our standing? And a huge part of America is this idea of a meritocracy, right? We're justified. We're valued by our competencies, by our talents, by our accomplishments. And we struggle to make other people value us and recognize the contributions that we make. Uh, this idea has infiltrated the church in many ways. Uh, not just in our attitudes, but I want to read to you an uh, idea here uh, written by a Lutheran theologian where he talks about how in our salvation we have to play a 
essential part. In other words, we're saved not only through the work of God, but we're also saved through our own effort, and that that effort... Well, let me just read this to you. And I want you to think about how do you resonate with this statement? Does it seem right to you? And so he says this, Moreover, any relationship of integrity will entail a sharing of power. Each party to the relationship must give up any monopoly on power for the sake of the relationship. Neither party to the relationship can be overwhelmed for the relationship to be a true one. For the sake of the relationship, God gives up the exercise of some power. This will in turn qualify any talk about divine control or divine sovereignty. Total control of the other in a relationship is no relationship of integrity. And so what uh, this uh, author talks about here is that there is a way in which God must share power with us in such a way that it is also our act that, that establishes our relationship with him, in other words, justifies us before him. Now, when I read that, I hope you at least get the sense of, yes, we do very much talk about this in our culture. Like any relationship, how do we feel about it if one side of the relationship has power over the other, and much less even total control and power over the other? We always want to kind of have that balance of power, right? In a relationship, we want to have an equal say. And one of the things that's very difficult in the church is the talk of submission. And so the idea that husbands and wives in their relationship to one another, wives, submit to your husband, Ephesians chapter 4. That's something that's hard for us as a culture to swallow because we have this idea that in any relationship, for the relationship to work, there has to be a sharing of power. And that intuition is a good one, right? Because in a fallen world, if you do not have some balancing of power, what do you have? Exploitation, right? If one party has power over the other party, then there will not be a good relationship because the side that has the power will take advantage of the side that doesn't. But is it true that any relationship of integrity must entail a relationship or a sharing of power? Let me give you one example. And, and, and basically, here's the condition. When are we able to have a relationship of integrity apart from a sharing of power? When there's love. When love is the foundation of the relationship. And so take a mother with her newborn baby. Is there a sharing of power here? And as that baby grows up and, and you have a toddler who's like two or three years old and sees a batch of cookies and that's what I want for dinner, what kind of mother in a relationship, well, okay, relationship integrity, we're going to share authority and power here. Yes, you choose dinner. That's not going to work very well. And in our relationship with God, God is sovereign. And yet, at the same time, there is integrity in the relationship because of his love for us. But there's also this dynamic where, on the one hand, it is God who works to 
calls us to will and act according to his good purpose. And yet at the same time, he calls upon us from a position of power, from a position of sovereignty to be his partner in working out our salvation. And so we've talked about salvation. What is salvation? Ultimately, our salvation is not only freedom from the penalty of sin, but it is also the freedom from all the effects of sin. And what is freedom from sin and the effects of sin? It's simply this, knowing and loving God. Freedom from sin is to know and to love God. Look at what Paul says in the passage right preceding ours that I've already read once for us. In verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Freedom from sin is coming to know and to love God. And so that's our goal. Our goal is to know God and to love him. And as we know and love him, that naturally leads us away from sin. Because to love God makes us desire to please him, makes us desire to be in that relationship with him, to see him, to to be in his presence all the time. And knowing him, then, helps us to know what his desires for our lives are so that we turn from those things that would lead us away from pleasing God, that would break our relationship with him. And so we see here a few things in terms of, so this is our goal, to know and to love God. And in that desire to know and love God, we also see an attitude that helps us to move towards this goal of salvation. What is this attitude? What is the attitude of salvation? Well, we see here that when Paul says, I look at all my accomplishments, all that I had done, and in terms of what he had done in order to attain a certain kind of righteousness in the eyes of that society and the culture of that time, under this culture that had been formed by the Jewish uh, people's understanding of the Torah and the law of God, all that he says, I count that as rubbish. And there we see a certain kind of humility, a humbling of himself before God, which he's already alluded to earlier when he talked about Christ. Christ humbled himself for his people. And now the response, the reciprocal response, which is not the equal response, is that we humble ourselves before God. And those things in which we had placed our identity before, the things that gave us our standing. When you introduce yourself to someone else on campus, what do you do? What is your major? You know, what are you studying? Or 
when you graduate, one of the first questions you usually ask, what do you do? And that's because our culture emphasizes these things so much. And they become so much a part of our identity and how we feel confident about ourselves. I'm an engineer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. And you feel when you're able to say something like that, that you have a certain place. For Paul, those things don't count at all. But what counts is that you have this relationship with Jesus Christ. If, on the other hand, you hold on to these things, there's an element of pride there. And a prideful person, as we all know, is very slow to change. Have you ever tried to correct a prideful person? What happens when you try to correct a prideful person? Well, in the sense you're saying, you've done something wrong. And how well does a prideful person take that correction? Not well at all, right? I should know this because I had a lesson in that myself. Uh, and I'll just kind of give an example of how I think uh, you can see that when you have pride, it makes you someone that is very hard for other people to help walk in that journey of faith. And so um, when I was working on my dissertation, uh, there was a number of, just, this is just a, uh, it, it's a, uh, <laughs> hopefully it's a helpful example to you, but I was working on my dissertation. I had put an enormous amount of work and I thought I had done a very good job in, in uh, interpreting this one particular theologian. I had written something like 40 pages on him. And so there's this large chapter in my dissertation. It was just on this particular um, theologian named James Torrance. And at one point in my dissertation, my wife Irene said, you know, I don't really know how that fits. It doesn't seem to support your argument very well. And I thought, no, 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 this is very good. This is, uh, you know, this is, this is good work. Uh, it, it, it needs to stay in here. And, and I also spent like half a year on this. Uh, this is good. I said, well, okay, but I, I just don't see how it fits. Uh, oh, okay, fine. Uh, I turned it into my uh, doctoral supervisor. You know, Hans, I, I, I'm not sure I quite see the significance of this thing. <laughs> so I worked for another couple months. I thought, okay, okay, I gotta, I gotta make it fit better and maybe just trim it down a little bit. So I, I, I tried to reduce it a bit. Turned it in again. Irene actually gave me some more. I still don't see how this fits, but okay, you go ahead. Uh, I turned it into my doctor's room. I like some of the other things you've done here, but I'm not sure how this section fits. <laughs> okay, I'll tell you one thing that was going on through that. It was painful, but one of the things God was teaching me here to be was a little bit more teachable, which means a little bit more humble a little bit better able to see the perspective of other people and to be corrected. And if I had taken actually the initial word from Irene, I probably would have saved myself half a year of work. In the end, I just kept reducing, and it was a slow, painful process. I would give in a little bit, but I would still try to keep everything in. And so, you know, 40 pages went down to like 20 pages, went down to 10 pages, went down to, at one point, <laughs> a uh, two-page footnote so there was a footnote that started on one page, and then, you know, you get to use that smaller font for your footnote part, so it, it did shrink it, so it didn't look like as much, but the footnote appeared, and then there was just like, the next two pages was just footnote before you got back to the regular, 
And then finally, in my last revision of the dissertation, there's a footnote that's this long. 40 pages down to that. How was I brought to that point? Well, in this case, there was a certain person who actually exercised power over me. It was my doctoral supervisor. I was not getting through without his approval. And he was showing me, like, this just doesn't fit. But I think, interesting enough, God had my wife point that out to me first. And when it was just her, I just thought, well, I know this so much better. I'm a better thinker. I know my theology better. I just know this better than I am. Okay. You know, actually, since that time, um, so we've had a couple other things. Like, you know, even, you know, we both study the scriptures. Um, on the book of Job, I remember we had this big question. Sorry, now I'm just getting, how much time do I have? <laughs> uh, okay, this is quickly uh, the book of Job. And I remember we were looking at what was going on there. And if you remember the story of Job, Job's confronted by these three friends. And then there comes this guy named Elihu. And we we're just trying to figure out how does this all fit together? And, and, and we just struggle with it. And it's just, okay, is he right? Is he wrong? Uh, theologians have come down on either side of it. Um, and, I just thought, and then I remember one day Irene came and said, you know, I think, I think this is how it works. And, and, and she uh, told me, she said, this, this is how we ought to interpret this. And I was like, ah, I don't really think so. Okay, fast forward two years later, I'm looking over it again. And I, tell, I go to Irene, I, I figured it out. This is what it means. And she's like, yeah, I told you two years ago. <laughs> and what was worse was she'd written a paper on it. And so she said, just look at my paper. That's exactly what I just told you. <laughs> so she had written evidence that that was what she had told me. Anyway, yeah, so two years later. I would... So if I, if I like, could just, sometimes it does take some time, right? I'm trying to give myself an excuse. But you know, if, you, if you humble yourself and you're willing to learn from other people and be corrected, uh, there's a teachability there. Paul had done way more work than me on my dissertation. He had spent his life zealously obeying, studying the scriptures, obeying every jot and tittle in the, in the Torah, and then zealously trying to carry it out in all of culture. And now what was he saying? It's less than a footnote. It's garbage. And he sets it all aside that he might gain Christ and be found in him. And so we said salvation is knowing and loving God. And I do want to point out, now, here's the thing. One of the things that, in terms of worship, and I've, I've spent a good bit of time looking at worship music, and one of the things that I thought was actually one of the greatest failings of contemporary worship is this idea that we love God. And we're, we say we love God a lot in our worship songs. And the problem with not, that is not loving God. It's good to love God, and we want to love God. But we have a very cheap idea of what it means to love God. And if you look through Scripture, what you find is that Scripture is strangely silent on this topic. Uh, we, I do know that there's that passage where Peter and Jesus are talking about, you know, Jesus saying, do you love me? Now, I'll point out right away, Peter's not the one who volunteers that, to say, I love you, but it's Jesus who comes to him and says, do you love me? And this is after Peter has betrayed him. I will say that even after Peter says, yes, you know I love you, John actually gives us an account that shows that maybe Peter isn't quite there yet, right? Because what happens right after that conversation between Jesus and Peter where 
Peter says, uh, yes, I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. Well, what's the way in which Peter's going to serve God and take care of the sheep? He's going to lay down his life. And, and Jesus tells Peter, when you grow old, people are going to come take you where you do not want to go. And that's to indicate the kind of death that Peter would die for him. What does Peter do? I love you. I'll serve you however you want. Is that what he said? No. He turned around and said, what about him? And so we do want to come to that place. But Paul here says, on the one hand, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But if you remember what he says earlier, let me read it to you again and think what kind of attitude leads someone to say the kind of words that Paul says here. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death. That is the language of love, isn't it? For those of you who are married, those of you who want to be married, isn't that what you want from your future spouse or your spouse today? That you might know one another, share your life together, that what you do, you will do together. And so God invites us into this relationship where we are also to work out our salvation because he loves us. And he's inviting us to love him too. And so that's the application for today. To know, to love God, to grow in that relationship, and to respond in love to the one who first loved us. Let's close in prayer. Father God, I pray that as a church, we will work and strive together. Because one of the things that's also apparent in this is that we are not to do this alone. But together as a body, we will press on toward the upper call of Christ Jesus to make him our own because he has made us his own. May we no longer be driven by the pressures of this world, by a desire to be significant in this world, to have others recognize our place and our significance, but instead help us to strive after Christ and be found in him, share in his sufferings, and with him, attain to the resurrection from the dead. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.